Well, good morning. Again, this is Act Two of the John Beagle Show this morning. I have noticed that the last couple times I've preached, first of all, I think I'm now being asked to preach the weekend after major holidays. Last time I preached was the weekend after Christmas, week after Easter. Uh, and I'm noticing that, that they're giving me multiple responsibilities on days when I preach. So when I preached after Christmas, I did announcements too. And uh, when I did it today, obviously I've, I've done communion. So they're, they're piling things on. I, I think they're, they're trying to see if I can handle it. So you guys can give them feedback afterwards. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate the affirmation. So uh, if you open your, uh, your bulletins and pull out your sermon notes, you'll see that the ladies in the office had some fun at my expense this week. Uh, the sermon has gone through a number of, a number of stages. Uh, we are going to be in Acts 2 today, so if you have your Bibles, please open your Bibles to Acts 2. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be happy to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep this one. It's our gift to you, and we would love for you to be reading the Bible consistently. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's just not just a nice name. We believe that God has spoken, and that He has spoken in a way that we can understand, and that what He said, He wrote down in this book, which is why we spend time every weekend preaching from it, teaching from it, learning it, reading it. We want you to be doing the same things. Well, today's the last day of the, the Masters golf tournament. Some of you probably are, are watching that. This is the, the one time a year when, when you can pretend like you know something about golf and, and say something about it, and you can say, oh, have you seen the Masters? I know a little bit about golf. I, I took golf lessons when I was a, when I was a child, uh, and I had a rather eccentric instructor named Chuck Lynch. And uh, Chuck would give me all sorts of stuff to do. I'm doing it in the summer. It's like 100 degrees outside. Uh, and in Chicago in the summer, it's very humid. And so I am sweating. There was actually one time I remember when I, I, I was taking a swing and my hands were so sweaty that I swung and the club went into the trees behind me. Um, but Chuck would give me all sorts of things for me to, to think about. And so it's, okay, you got to keep your legs you know, shoulder width apart, keep your shoulders square, keep your back straight, you got to lean, nope, that's too much, don't lean over too much, okay, no, that's not the right grip on the club, okay. There's so much, and, and, and for somebody who's OCD like me, I can't handle all of those things. Like, you got to give me one thing to do. And so, he's like, all right, I'm going to give you one thing to do. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Now, that didn't guarantee that my swing was going to be beautiful. Clearly it's not, I'm not on the PGA Tour. And if you guys went golfing with me, you'd say, don't quit your day job. <laughs> but I could tell you that if I didn't keep my eye on the ball, it wasn't gonna go anywhere near where I wanted it to go. And so keeping my eye on the ball didn't guarantee a good shot, but it meant that we were on the right track. I had a lot better shot at success if I kept my eye on the ball than if I was looking all over the place. The church is a little bit like a golf swing. How's that for a transition? <laughs> well, what I mean is the church is made up of a lot of moving parts. There's all sorts of stuff going on. You, you only need to look at our bulletin or look on our website to see we've got all sorts of things going on, all sorts of good things going on. But but getting everything in, in, in sync and having it all work together can be, can be challenging. But like a golf swing, or at least like my golf swing, sometimes we need to, we need to step back and say, all right, what, is, what do we need to do to keep our eye on the ball? What do we need to do to, to be prioritizing the right things uh, in the church? Because there's lots of things that the church could do. Maybe even there's lots of things that the, the church should do. But there are a couple of things that the church must do. And we need to keep our eyes on those. We need to focus on those things. Because if we don't, then whatever we are, we're not a church. 
And so what I want to do is I want to look in Acts chapter 2. I want to look at the early church. Uh, the, the, it's really the birthday of the church. And I want to look at their example and, and see what did they prioritize and what does that teach us about what we should be prioritizing right now. I will say that, that, that Acts 2 is, it is uh, it's a narrative passage. It's not giving instruction, so it's not saying you need to do things exactly like this, um, but it does give us a helpful paradigm. It gives us a window into what these first Christians thought was important. And Paul says that everything that has been written in former times was written for our instruction, so we're going to, to see what kind of instruction we can get from this text. I really want to be looking at two questions First is, what should be the church's priorities? Why do we gather? What, what should we be prioritizing as a church? And then the second is, what will be the effect of correct priorities? If we prioritize correctly, what effect should we be looking for? So, we're going to look at Acts 2, and we're actually going to start in verse 36. So the handout is wrong, technically. Peter preaches this sermon. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and he told the apostles, you're going to go preach, but you're not going to do it until the Holy Spirit comes to empower you. So the beginning of Acts chapter 2, this is what happens. The Holy Spirit comes, he empowers the apostles for ministry, and then Peter gets up and everybody, they're, they're, they're speaking in different languages so everybody there can understand them. And, and the people there are, they're in Jerusalem are saying, these guys are drunk. And Peter gets up, and the first thing, his introduction to the sermon, I like this, is, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. I'm going to start a sermon like that sometime. <laughs> and, and he goes through, and, and he's showing how uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he gets to the end of his sermon, he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the word does what it's supposed to do. It cuts to the heart. And the people respond, they say, what should we do? And Peter says to them, repent, each one of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise, this promise of forgiveness of sins is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So he preaches the gospel, and then look what happens. So then, those who received his word, not just heard it, but received it, rested on it, believed that it was true and were willing to stake their life on it, those who received his word were baptized. And that day there were added, added to the church, added to their number, the number of disciples, about 3,000 souls. But they didn't get saved and just go home. It wasn't a big crusade meeting, and then everyone was like, all right, now go home and, and God be with you. They, they were together. They, there, there was a community that was formed. The gospel forms a community. We're not in this alone. And so we're going to look over the next uh, several verses at what the priorities of this early church were and what we can learn from them. Before we do, let me, let me pray for us. Lord, you did say that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It it lays open and judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We thank you that you have spoken 
and that we can come to Scripture and learn from you. We pray that as we, we do, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that Jesus would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. So I'm going to read chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 42 to, to 47, and then we're going we're gonna to come back and we're going to hit different, different points along the way. It's verse 42. They, that's not just the apostles, this is, this is everybody who got saved, the whole church. They were continually devoting themselves, they were, they were giving themselves always. They were paying persistent attention to these things. They kept doing it. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the first thing I want you to notice about what the, the, the early church prioritized and what we can, we can see is this is something that we should be prioritizing is, is the priority that the church placed on the gospel. Say, duh, yeah, we know that. We know that the church prioritizes the gospel. But, but look at what they did. First, they, they prioritized the gospel in the terms of, of proclaiming the truth of the gospel for evangelism. We see that uh, really in, in all of chapter 2, and, and especially in, in verse 41, where it says, those who received the word that Peter spoke were baptized and were added to the church. And, and this is a, a consistent theme through the book of Acts, is that the apostles are going around, they're preaching the gospel, and they preach the gospel, and people get saved. And so there's a commitment in the early church to preaching the gospel, to doing it consistently. But it's not only for evangelism. As we see in verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, certainly the apostles' teaching includes the gospel, but but it's more than that, or it's deeper than that. It's, it's the gospel and all of its implications for our lives. You see, we don't graduate from the gospel when we become a Christian. Sometimes we can get the impression that if I've, if I've accepted the gospel, that's really all I need it for, and now I can move on to, to other stuff. I heard Tim Keller say one time that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is everything. And so it's, it's the basic message that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and after three days rose again in accordance with the scriptures and whoever trusts in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. But it's more than that too. We can go deeper and deeper into the gospel. It's, it's something simple enough that a child can understand it and something complex and beautiful enough that we will never fully comprehend it. So the church devoted themselves not just to preaching the gospel so that other people would come in, but teaching the gospel to those of us who are already there, people who are already believers. And that's why, that's why we come here on Sunday mornings. We come to, to hear and learn about the gospel. We come to learn about how the gospel affects our lives as Christians. At least I hope that's why you come. Because if the gospel's not real, if the apostles' teaching that's contained in this book, this is the apostles' teaching. If the apostles' teaching is not in the Bible, if the gospel's not, not real, then we are wasting our time. Right? That's what Paul says when he talks about the resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He's like, if Jesus isn't raised, 
we are the dumbest people in the world. Why would we be devoting ourselves to this kind of stuff week in and week out for our whole lives if it's all a hoax? If the gospel is not true and if the church isn't committed to the truth of the gospel, there's a lot better things you could be doing on a Sunday morning. But if the gospel is true, if these words are the voice of God, then there is nothing more valuable that you could do with your time. So the church devoted itself to the gospel, the message about Christ. But it also devoted itself, not not just the, the proclamation of the gospel, but it also devoted itself to the gospel in another way. And so we could call it the gospel proclaimed, what's taught by the apostles, what's taught in the word. Then you could also call it the gospel made visible. So what's that? That's baptism in the Lord's Supper. Look at, at verses 41 and 42. Verse 41, it says, those who received the word were baptized. So those who, who believed in Christ underwent this, this rite of baptism. They would go into the water, uh, representing that, that they had died and been buried with Christ. And they would come out of the water, representing that they were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And that was the, that was the doorway into the church. It represented that, that they had come to know Christ. And then in verse 42... It says they, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, there's some debate over, over what that phrase actually means. Uh, it could just mean they ate together. And certainly it's possible. We see that's true later in the passage. I think, and, and it's, not, <clears throat> it's not only me, so I'm not just making this up, uh, I think it probably is a reference to the Lord's Supper. They gathered together, as Jesus said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And, and so we know that the early church would gather, and on the first day of the week, they would, they would take the Lord's Supper together. And so, so baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we've just celebrated right now, are these, these visual pictures of the gospel. They, they set before our eyes in a representation what Christ has actually done. And, and like, uh, like I was saying during communion, as we, as we hold the bread, say, this is how real Jesus was, as real as I'm touching this bread. And as I eat the bread, as real as this bread is being digested and going into me, that's how real my sins are forgiven if I trust him. It's, it's a sign and a symbol of, of our assurance, the promise of the gospel. So the church was committing itself to these things. They would gather, they would hear the apostles' teaching, they would observe baptism and the Lord's Supper because these things proclaimed the gospel. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. And so how, how important is the gospel to you? What are you doing to learn more about it? What are you doing to see how it applies to your life? Have you stopped reading your Bible? Are you still hungry for it? Uh, are, are you reading Christian books? Are you listening to good teaching, things that are going to stir your affections for Christ, things that are going to, to show you the beauty of the gospel and the finished work of Jesus? I mean, there's a lot of things that vie for our attention but there's nothing that's more beautiful or more worth our time than the gospel. And so I, I want you to be thinking about that. How, how can I be growing in my commitment to and my love for and my understanding of the gospel? And that's, that's why we preach from this book every week. We want to instruct you in that. That's why we have small groups and Bible studies. That's why we sell good books uh, in the, at the book cart at the Woodside Room because we want to be getting this stuff into your hands. We... We're not just looking for you to get involved in more stuff here so we can look good. Uh, we want you to be growing in your faith. So the, they prioritized the gospel. But they also prioritized fellowship. Again, we see it in verse 
42. They were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. And this looks uh, a, couple, uh, a couple different ways in this text. Fellowship is kind of a churchy word. I don't really use it a whole lot outside of church. And so sometimes we can think that fellowship just means friendship. It's just a Christian word for friendship. But, but it's more than that. It comes from a Greek word that has the connotation of sharing, uh, uh, mutual participation, partnership. And so it's this, it's this deep, intimate friendship uh, that we share with one another because we share in Christ. And this sharing looks, uh, looks a couple, uh, like a couple different things. First, they, they shared time. It's the expression of how they prioritized fellowship. They shared their time. Verse 44, all those who believed were together. And then in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. So they were together regularly. Now, based on the situation in Jerusalem, it certainly does seem like they're together day by day. They're, they're meeting every day in the temple to worship and to pray, to hear the apostles' teaching. You'll be happy to know that I'm not suggesting that we start doing church services every day. But, uh, I, think, I think what we can learn from this is these people were willing to sacrifice their time in order to be with other Christians. They were willing to give up some of their other priorities because they thought this was a more important priority. It's a more important priority to be with other Christians in some environment. It requires a sacrifice of time and effort. So not only did they share their time with one another, they also shared their resources. At verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Now, we usually want to rush kind of past this verse. We're like, well, that's contextual. We don't have to do that. That's, you know, they did that back then, but there's, I'm sure there's a loophole that we don't need to do that. Um, so I, I, I do want to point out a couple things. One, it sounds a little bit like communism. It's not communism, right? This is voluntary. They are, they are willingly selling their, their goods for the sake of others. And they're not selling everything because some people still have homes because they're able to meet in people's homes. So if they sold everything, they would all be meeting for dinner on the street. So it, it's not communism. People still had private property and they only gave voluntarily. Now, just so that we don't get the impression like, whew, okay, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do that. It's not consumerism either. And this is the problem in our culture. We have a radically individualized consumeristic culture that says, I should get what I want when I want it, and I don't have to share it with anybody. <laughs> See, the people... They weren't forced to give of their possessions, but they gave of them gladly. They gladly held their resources with open hands because they knew that what they had wasn't theirs anyway. It belongs to God. And so whatever you have belongs to God, and you stand there with open hands and say, God, I am willing to give up what you have given me for the sake of your people, if you need it. Sometimes he'll say, I don't need it. Sometimes he'll say, I need it, you need to sell it. I need it, you need to give it. We're uncomfortable with that. And we're especially uncomfortable with that with somebody saying it from a stage, right? The church is just trying to, to get our money, we're trying to build a bigger this or that, we're trying to, we're trying to become an empire. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say other than that's not what we're doing. We want people to know about Jesus. And so we think there are things we can do that will help us 
continue to do ministry here, Bucks County, across the river, in Philly. We think there are things that we can do that will bring people to Christ if God gives growth. And so we would encourage you to to stand with open hands and say, I'm willing to give what the Lord asks for the sake of his people and his kingdom. Here endeth the lesson. Next, they also shared relationships. So they didn't just share their time and and their resources, but they opened their lives to people. So look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. So they they were going up to, to worship at the temple together. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So an invitation to eat together in this culture is an invitation to intimate friendship. This is why the Pharisees get so bent out of shape when Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Because for him to eat with these people who are unclean, who are sinners, means that he's friends with them. And the Pharisees didn't like that. Why was it such a big deal that Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house? In Luke 19, right? Y'all remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. (laughs) He was a tax collector. That's the bottom of the barrel. You don't get any worse in Israelite culture than a tax collector. And so Jesus comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. That's amazing. Jesus is saying to the lowest person in society, I want you to be my friend. And so as the church comes to eat together, it's it's a sign that they they are becoming friends. They're opening their lives to one another. That's not just friendship like the way that we think about it. It's more than that. It's accountability. It's encouragement. It's it's admonishing one another in the faith. Think about in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer talks about how uh, we should continue to meet together day by day so that none of us will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Later in the book of Hebrews, it says that we should meet together to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another all the more. So, I want to ask you, how does your life reflect the priority of fellowship? How does your life reflect a prioritization of being with the church? This is your requisite PSA for small groups. This is why we have small groups. For fellowship, for growth. Providing a place where you can be accountable, where you can share about your, what you're going through, the triumphs and travails of your Christian life, that you can pray for one another, that you can love one another, right? And I don't, I don't say this because I want you all to get into small groups so I can have a long list of people who are in small groups and take it to the elders and say, see, I get to keep my job, right? We want it because it's for your good. We're not doing it because we're looking for other stuff to do. We're doing it because we think it's valuable. Uh, So has the Lord been pressing you to to be involved with other Christians? To be in some kind of environment where you can be growing, where you can be loving one another, where you can be doing... The New Testament is full of these one another passages, things that we just can't do on a Sunday morning because there's too many of us. And so that's why we have small groups, so that we can do those things there. If you're interested... Getting in a small group, you can go to our website. We have a list of groups that are open. If you don't see one there, come talk to me. Or just stop somebody and ask them and say, hey, are you in a small group? How do I get into one? It doesn't only need to be small groups. It could be a men's group, a women's group. Some kind of environment where you are able to be encouraged and challenged by the body of Christ. So they're devoted to the gospel. They're devoted to to fellowship. 
but also they were, they were prioritizing worship. And that seems obvious. You know, of course the church is prioritizing worship. But, but I want you to notice that there's a specific corporate aspect to their worship here. They weren't just all saying, yes, we are all individually worshiping God. They were saying, uh, we come together so that with one voice, we can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Look at, look at how this works itself out. In verse 42, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So what was happening was it looks like they were, they were going up to the temple courts every day, probably by Solomon's portico, this one area along the side of the temple. Uh, and they were going to, to meet and to pray together and probably going up at, at the time when, when all the Jews would go up to prayer. And they're, they're committed to it. They're probably also praying in, in their homes, but, but, but it's specifically it's corporate prayer. It's not just individual prayer. It's, it's they are committed to gathering together to pray with one another. And that's a consistent feature of the Church of Acts. You start in Acts 1, and the disciples are gathered together in the upper room, devoting themselves to prayer. They're devoted to prayer here. In Acts 4, they're all together and they're praying. In Acts 6, the elders and the apostles say, we have to devote ourselves to prayer. And in Acts 12, you have a prayer meeting because Peter's in jail, and the people are praying earnestly for him to be released. He shows up because the Lord miraculously released him, and the people don't believe that it's him. This prayer works. And so, I want to be careful because we could end up making everybody feel guilty. I don't know, I don't know that I've ever met anyone who says my prayer life couldn't be better. So, I'm going to make a confession. Prayer is hard for me. Prayer is hard for me. So, if you pray, pray for me. Pray that I could pray better. Prayer is hard for me. I don't know why. It just always has been. And so it means that I need to be even more disciplined in making it a priority in my life. How committed to you, or how committed to prayer are you? Both personally, but then also corporately. How committed to praying, not just for the church, but with the church, are you? Do you ever pray with other Christians? I'm going to give you a very practical application of how you can do this. In two weeks, we have a prayer meeting here. Uh, April 26th in the evening. There will be child care. So I'm giving you guys fair notice that we're having a prayer meeting. Now, you coming to the prayer meeting doesn't make you a better Christian you coming to the prayer meeting doesn't mean that uh, something else is going to happen or it's like if you don't come, nothing's going to happen. But we want to encourage you to come and to pray with us. Pray because, like Tom said, nothing that happens is, at this church is because of anything creative that we're doing. God says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So we pray to ask God to work mightily in us. That, that the word of God would speed ahead and prevail mightily. It would increase and the number of disciples would grow. So please, be looking for that. Come out to that. Two weeks from tonight, we'll be praying here. I, I hope that we have, we're just going to pack it out and we'll have, we'll have to put up a grandstand because of how many people want to come and pray with the church. So, but they're also committed, not just to corporate prayer, but corporate praise. And this is probably what we're a little more familiar with when we think about worship, Right? Now, worship isn't just singing. Giving praise to God is not only in song, though that's a part of it. What I want you to see here, it doesn't say anything necessarily about them, about them singing, but what it says is they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart and praising God. Uh, something that marked them as the church was that they were overflowing with joy and thanksgiving and praise to God. Now sometimes, as Christians, we can be the most glum, gloomy, dour people in the world. And I don't know why. 
And I'm talking to myself too. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the scripture, I'm like, this is, like, this is what we're supposed to be like. The, the apostles talk about unspeakable joy. And, and obviously I know there, there are the ups and downs of, of emotion and what's going on in, in our lives, but is there a consistent, a, a consistent strain of joy in our lives? I mean, we're asking people to come trust Christ, and we're saying, come trust Christ, and then be like us. It's not a really good ad. Now, we did uh, just have a, a, a nice celebration where we rejoiced a lot. I mean, we had Good Friday. We had Easter, and everybody you know, comes in, Easter, praise the Lord, Jesus is alive, praise the Lord. We come in, and we look all nice, and, and, and then we come back this week, and it's kind of like, all right, back to normal. I have good news for you. Jesus is still alive. He's still alive this week. He says, I am the one who died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. And so every week, every day, we have something to rejoice about. We have have something to rejoice about. If you're a Christian, Jesus says you will never die. That's a big deal. So there's something to be excited about all the time. And I understand there are situations in our lives that will get us down. But Jesus told his disciples that when you see me, you will rejoice and that no one will take your joy from you. So what does our worship look like? Is it overflowing with praise and joy and honor to God? Or are we too busy trying to find something to complain about? Because that's what I'm good at. That may be my spiritual gift. (laughs) And so I need to constantly reorient myself to the Word and be looking and saying, There there is something here that should make me rejoice in God, in what He's done. So do you find yourself rejoicing and giving thanks like that Or do you find yourself tending towards being melancholy? I think when we we suffer with that, we need to go back to the gospel. There's a a song that that Keith and Kristen Getty uh, sing. It's called, Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. Man, that should be my prayer every day. Don't let me lose my wonder at what you have done for me. I don't do a very good job at it. But I want to. So what can you do to, to rejoice in the Lord? And I want to answer the second question. So we saw, here's what the church uh, was prioritizing. It was prioritizing the gospel. It prioritized prayer. And a prioritized, or a prioritized fellowship and a prioritized worship, prayer and praise. And what was the result? What, what is the, the expected effect of a church that prioritizes these things? Well, I think we, we can see that a church with correct priorities should expect fruitful ministry. A church with correct priorities should expect fruitful ministry. Good verse starting at the, uh, at the end of verse 46. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God, and they had favor with all the people. Right? That's not the church. That's all the other people who weren't a part of the church. Uh, ben Witherington, who's a, who's a Bible commentator, said that, that the church in Acts, uh, th- their presence and witness must have been infectious. To, to have all of these people, people who didn't believe that Jesus said who he said he was. All of these people somehow were giving favor to the church. I mean, they, they saw the reality, the sincerity of their beliefs, the reality of their worship and their love for one another. And they said, well, whatever that is, it's sure doing something to them. 
No wonder they thought they were drunk. And so what we see here, and we actually see it throughout Acts, is that when the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, it says, and the Lord was adding to their number, and the number of disciples increased, and the number of those who had come to Christ was multiplying. We see that over and over again. And so you can see that, the, that a church with correct priorities, that's prioritizing the right things, should expect fruitful ministry. This isn't a promise. This is not field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Right? Paul says, he says, I watered, another person, or uh, I planted, another person watered, but God gave the growth. Right? And so we believe that God grows the church. Right? And he's doing it here. He's doing it here. And it's not because we're doing anything creative. We're just preaching the word. And people are coming in. And I'm, I'm hoping that as people come in, they're not only hearing the word, they're seeing how we love one another. And they're seeing how we are overflowing with joy and praise to God. And it's something that's infectious. And they say, I don't know what you have, but I want that. So we should expect, and the, John Stott, who's a, uh, he's with the Lord now, but was a wonderful preacher and, and, uh, and writer uh, before he died, said, uh, on this passage that we need to recover the expectation of steady and uninterrupted church growth. Not because we've figured out the technique that works. Not because we figured out what we need to put in the lobby or, or uh, what we need to talk about from the pulpit or what we need to offer as a program that will get more people here. We need to to expect, recover this expectation of steady and uninterrupted church growth because we're prioritizing the right things and we are praying that God would be faithful. We just gather the kindling and only he can light the fire. But we want to gather the kindling faithfully. It's not only numerical growth, that's not the only kind of of spiritual or of, uh, of growth that we should see the only kind of fruitful ministry. We should also see spiritual growth. So there are many churches that are probably doing these things faithfully and they're not experiencing numerical growth. That doesn't mean they're unfaithful. But they may be experiencing spiritual growth, which is also fruitful ministry. We see this throughout the book of Acts as well. As when, uh, when Paul or Peter, whoever goes into a city, they plant a church and they do in, they, they're instructing them and then they, they leave because they've trained people up to be able to take over the church. People are growing. Uh, it, it talks about in, uh, in Acts 9. I'll flip over there. You don't need to. The end of Acts 9. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace and being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So they're being built up. That's part of fruitful ministry. And then it says, and they continued to increase. We should expect Tom and I were talking about this yesterday. We should expect when we preach the gospel that the word of God will draw people to Christ. We've experienced a lot of growth in this church. I've only been here for a year and a half, but even in the time I've been here, we've grown. As a result, there's a lot of different challenges and also a lot of opportunities. And and we feel that a wide door has opened for ministry here. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going, to be, we're going to be sharing with you some of the opportunities that we think God has placed in front of us and, and talking more about that. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to preach this message today is because I wanted you to, to be sure that no matter what we're doing, we're doing it because of this. We're doing it because we want to be prioritizing the gospel. We want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We want to be devoted to fellowship and to worship and corporate prayer. We want to we do church the way that the Bible tells us to. We want to be committed to the things that the Bible tells us we should be committed to. We want to keep our eye on the ball and then pray that the Lord would, by the power of his spirit, empower us and would accomplish great things through us. And so a couple things to think about before we wrap up 
Uh, number one would be, if, if you're a believer, uh, what, what, what might God be pressing on your heart right now? Uh, have you neglected your devotion to the gospel? Are you reading your Bible? Are you in a Bible study? Are you, are you thinking about these things constantly? There's all sorts of books I could recommend. I'm, I, I'm trying not to hawk books up here. Um, but we have, we have at, the, at the book card a wonderful book called The Gospel Primer. I know Tom and Bob have both recommended it from this stage. I would recommend it too. It's a great devotional, something you could read that will, that will put before your eyes the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for you and remembering that we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So, or maybe you've not been devoted to fellowship. Maybe you've, uh, you've, you've been kind of steering away from, from opening your life to other Christians. And, and that doesn't mean you have to be doing something like here as a part of our church, official things, but, but are you with other Christians other than Sunday morning? Are you encouraging one another? Are you challenging one another? Are you in situations where people can speak into your life? You can speak into others' lives. You can be accountable and you can encourage one another. This isn't a, this isn't a solo sport, right? We're, we're a team. We need to be meeting together. Maybe some of you uh, the Lord is pressing on you to join a small group or a men's group or a women's group. We'd love to talk to you about that. I want you to be involved in, in, in something that can give you fellowship, this church. Uh, and then also, what, what are you doing to, to increase your, your joy? Are you, are you praying that God would fill you with a delight for Christ, with a joy that's overflowing, that, that cannot be squashed? Are you committed to, to praying? Are you committed to praying with us? And we're not going to judge you if you don't come to the, to the prayer meeting, but it's a great opportunity to come and to pray with the church. We invite you to, to do that. Then last, to ask you uh, a question, are you a part of the church? I don't mean are you a member of the church, and I don't mean are you a regular attender of the church, I don't mean, are you a regular attender of another church? I don't mean, have you ever come through a church door before? I don't mean, did you grow up in church? So to be a part of the church means that you have been justified, forgiven through faith in Christ. Well, you believe that you deserve God's wrath for your sins. God is holy and just, and if he did not punish sin, he would not be holy or just. And God must punish sin, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God is also merciful, and in his mercy, he sent Jesus Christ, God the Son, to become a man, that he would live a perfect life, a life that we should have lived, and that when he died, it was not a tragic accident. It was not a, a, a bad twist of fate. Jesus said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. And so when Jesus died on the cross, when we just talked about this on Good Friday, when Jesus died, he wasn't dying because he was a sinner. He was dying to bear the punishment for our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ died once for all, the righteous one, for we who are unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But it's not automatic. You have to embrace him by faith. You need to say, I know that if I stand before God with nothing but my works and my life and my righteousness, that there is no way that my sins will be forgiven. I've not been good enough. You say, I know if I stand before God, I will deserve his wrath. You can know, you can know before you leave this room today that you can be forgiven of your sins. If you stand before God and say, God, I have no reason that you should forgive me, but I have trusted Christ and his death counts for mine. 
His life counts for mine. And having been justified by His blood, we have peace with God and we know that we will be saved from the wrath of God. And so, we're going to pray as we, as we bow our heads. I want to invite you, if you're here and if you have not responded to the gospel in faith, if you have not responded to Christ, if you don't know how you would respond if God were to say, why should I forgive you? And you want to know that you can be forgiven of your sins, then trust Christ, embrace him by faith. As we bow our heads, if that's something that you want to do this morning, if the word of God has cut to your heart and shown you that you're a sinner, like we all are, but that you can be saved, you can be forgiven of your sins through faith in Christ and what he has done on your behalf. You just pray something uh, right there in your seat. Pray something like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you and I deserve your wrath and judgment. But I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins and that his death is payment for the sins that I should pay for that he was raised, and because of that, I know I can have eternal life with him. I submit to you as Lord. I trust you as Savior. If you've made that decision this morning, maybe for the first time, uh, with, with every, uh, every head bowed still, I want you to just look up at me, maybe... Raise your hand a little bit so I can, I can see. I want to pray for you. I'd love to give you a booklet, help explain more about what we believe. And Father, thank you. Thank you for um, this one who's Express that he wants to receive forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. We pray that you would guard them from the evil one and um, you would welcome them uh, into your body, the church. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful. It cuts to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It, it does far more than we could ask or imagine. We thank you. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who is working in our midst. We pray that you would continue to, to help us prioritize correctly, to, to keep the main thing the main thing, and, and to continue to preach the gospel and love one another and, and worship you in spirit and in truth. So thank you for our, our church and pray that we would continue to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Sunday, enjoy the beautiful weather.